You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Lee McIntyre, who is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, also the author of a number of books, most recently this book here, How to Talk to a Science Denier, just before that, this book, The Scientific Attitude, Defending Science from Denial, Fraud, and Pseudoscience. Also, this wonderful short book called Post-Truth, another book on the social sciences, right? Dark Ages, Study of Human Behavior. And then going way back, you were a philosopher of chemistry, which I didn't even think there was such a thing, but I guess, I guess we need a philosophy of everything. There, there wasn't for the longest time until I was in graduate school. And I remembered asking my advisor, who was a philosopher of physics, why is there no philosophy of chemistry? And he said, I don't know, maybe you could make it up. Well, a few years later, I was at a conference giving a paper called, why is there no philosophy of chemistry? And as it turned out, one of the preeminent philosophers of chemistry in the world was there speaking on the same symposium I was going to be in, we met, he read the first couple of pages of my paper and said, let's be pals. <laughs> let's, let's do something about this. And so we, there already really was a philosophy of chemistry. It just hadn't been publicized. And, but we wrote a paper together called the case for the philosophy of chemistry and really brought it out in public view. So it was, that, that was a lot of fun. That's a happy chapter in my life. You've got a lot of people who are saying, you know, trust science. Science is real, right? <laughs> you know, I have faith in science. It sounds something like an oxymoron. And, but a lot of people think that science is under, under attack. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of people are confused by what science actually is, right? Even people who are very practitioners, right? You mentioned that they're kind of, yeah, they're kind of naive realists, that scientists themselves, they just do science. They don't really reflect on it. And yet, I think to some level, if you know, everyone's an implicit philosopher, so everyone has an implicit idea of mm -hmm. what they think philosophy is, what's, what science is. You know, I know in, in my classes, you know, business classes, we, we talk about the scientific method quite a lot and we conflate this scientific method with science. Even when I'm sure you've talked about, you know, startups, we talk about startups as labs mm -hmm. testing hypotheses and using the scientific method to figure out whether or not their business model is going to succeed. So, you know, I guess we first have to figure out, you know, what is science and why is it that it's not clear cut, right? It's something that philosophers have coupled yeah. with quite a bit. Well, the good news is that you don't have to have a philosophical understanding of the foundation of science to do science, or even to really understand, you know, how great science is and why it's special. I mean, the people who are doing science, they're getting it right. The problem comes when we start to ask the meta questions. What is science? Why is science privileged? Why it's a special way of knowing? Is science always right? What happened? Who attacks it? What do the, the people who are attacking it say? That's when the philosophers come in sort of handy. Some scientists don't like philosophy of science and have said pretty mean things about it in their, their work. I think my favorite was Richard Feynman, who said philosophy of science was as useful for science as ornithology was for birds. Well, you know, ornithology is not that relevant to birds. 
until birds are being attacked. And then maybe, uh, you you know, you want somebody to talk about speciation and, you know, endangered species, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that philosophers of science, for the most part, are allies of science who want to figure out how to defend it. The problem is that philosophers have spent about the last hundred years trying to solve something called the demarcation problem to figure out what exactly is that dividing line between science and non-science or science and pseudoscience, depending on how you want to do it. And we have not come up with a definitive answer. And that is not a good way to defend yourself. Because then when the science deniers come in and say, well, you know, why is science so great? Maybe the scientists, they don't, how would you even respond to that question if you devoted your life to science and maybe, you know, you hadn't been reflective about its foundation? Sometimes scientists get lured into saying things like, well, this is proven when it's not proven. It's just overwhelmingly likely to be true. And then, you know, can get pinned down, unfortunately, in a debate. So what I wanted to do, I wrote the book, The Scientific Attitude, because I wanted to see if I could answer the question of what was special about science without getting into, you know, pretending that I was solving the demarcation debate. The demarcation debate is a, a logical or methodological thing that philosophers are obsessed with, where you have to specify the necessary and sufficient conditions for science. And that's not necessarily something that scientists need to worry about or that those who are attacking science do worry about. So I tried to boil it down. What really for me was the essence of science? What was the thing that was the most important thing to do if you were a scientist? And the answer I came up with was, you have to have a scientific attitude, not a scientific method, which is, you know, maybe a recipe that you follow. And a lot of philosophers of science think there is no scientific method. And I make that claim as well in my book. But the scientific attitude is the idea that you care about evidence and you're willing to change your mind based on new evidence. And I thought that works because any scientist, if you attack their theory, you know, they're going to maybe want to defend it. But then if you say, well, look, what if I found this? Would that overthrow your theory? And they have to answer yes or no, or better yet, tell you, if you found this, that would overthrow my theory. It's a certain intellectual honesty to science. Compare that to a denier. They really don't answer that question, can't answer that question. You try talking to a science denier, about facts, every time you criticize something, they'll move to something else. Pin them down to say, what would change your mind? They can't do it. Or if they do it, and then you provide it, they'll say, oh, well, and move on to something else. It's a fascinating question for a philosopher, but it has real-world consequences these days when people are attacking truth, facts, reasoning, and science. We need a defense of science, and that's what I try to provide. But it's actually pretty hard to find someone who will come right out and say that they are anti-scientific. I mean, the people that we see as being, you know, pseudo-scientific or as deniers, you know, they will themselves invoke science to defend their positions. It, it kind of reminds me of, if you go back to the 17th century, right? I mean, if, you know, Spinoza and Bale and, you know, Hobbes and those folks, like they would never come out and say, oh yeah, I'm an atheist. They would instead say, oh no, I've actually got the, the right religion. You know, my relationship to Christianity is the right one. <laughs> and it seems like the, these folks are, are using 
you know, science, they say that they're scientific. And when you, when you went to that convention, right, with the, the flat earth people, they really did think that they were the, the real scientists out there, right? I think that's correct. I mean, I've never met a science denier <laughs> because nobody identifies that way. And if you're talking to them, it's best not to use that word probably. But they bristle at it. But no, they think of themselves as being more scientific than the scientists, more open-minded and more skeptical, you know, at the same time, that they're really the rigorous thinkers and that scientists are biased. But interesting thing here, the first thing that you said is absolutely right, that there's there's nobody who's really anti-science. And what I mean by that is even somebody that I would call anti-science. Maybe Ted Kaczynski is anti-science, right? He wrote that, you know, that dissertation against science and technology and society. But the problem with deniers is that they're what I call cafeteria skeptics. They're not against science. They're against the science that interferes with what they want to believe on a particular topic. So the flat earthers are a great example. They were virulent science deniers about the shape of the earth and thought there was a conspiracy amongst the world leaders and the airline pilots and the astronauts and the scientists and the teachers. But they got on planes to come to that convention in Denver. So, and who flew those planes? Pilots who were in on the conspiracy about the shape of the earth, but they trusted them well enough to trust science and also tweeted on their phones. I mean, they used science all the time. It's just that they didn't like the science. They didn't trust the science that impinged on something they wanted to believe. The biggest areas of science denial are, well, you know, flat earth. Uh, that's probably not the biggest one, but it's the, the one that is the you know, the, maybe the foundational one, the one that everybody can understand why it's denier, but also anti-vax, anti-COVID, you know, anti-vax before COVID, anti-vax after COVID, climate denial, evolution denial, you know, the, these are the big ones. But it hasn't always been this way, right? So if you go back to the Scopes trials, right? I mean, it was science yeah. versus, you know, faith. People would very explicitly say, right, you know, they'd appeal to authority and they'd say, well, look, you know, this is what the Bible says. And so that's, you know, that's where I'm, I'm standing and falling on that, right? And regardless of whatever empirics you, you bring to the table. So you don't see that as much anymore. And, and when you, I think when you go back to the early days of philosophy of science, you know, that was really the, the, the thing that they were trying to delineate, right? They were trying to kind of delineate the world of science yeah. and the world of what they called metaphysics. Astrology, the certain types of psychology, the logical positives worried about the evolution by natural selection, you know, worried about the, the you know, religious pushback. Look, that still happens. And then, of course, back to Galileo, right? The, you know, the, uh, the ultimate clash between science and religion. I think about it this way. If you wanted to know the empirical reality, there's really no better, better method than science. But people have been curious about empirical reality for a long, long time before science was, you know, even a blip in ancient Greece. And how did they do it? Well, maybe they used their senses, but that wasn't codified in any sort of methodological way. I, I guess maybe it was in an informal way. But my point is, there are times when we want to believe something is true but we haven't tested it and our gut reaction just feels right. Sometimes that can be motivated by religion. Sometimes it can be motivated by politics. But whenever we have this instinct that we know better, 
the scientists have got to be wrong because we know better. That's when there's a clash. And that's what I'm against, by the way, whether it's religion or politics, whether it's politics right or left. And, you know, you said that it that isn't really the way it is now. It's just that it's morphed. You don't see so much religious pushback against science now. You see political pushback against science. That's that's what's happening now. But it's all ideology, right? That's what my earlier book, Dark Ages, was about. It was about, you know, making the argument that political ideology was doing to social science what religious ideology had done to natural science in the Galilean era. But you know what? Since I wrote that book in 2000, was published in 2005 or six, things have gotten much worse. And it's not just that the politics is being used to attack social science. It's being used to attack all science and even worse, all of reality. It's no longer just scientific truth. It's all truth. It's the truth about elections, about, you know, anything you want. That's the real danger. I'm a fan of science. I want to defend science. And so anytime ideology impinges on science, that's when I want to step in. Now, we'll have to ask about uh, trends because, you know, as an historian, I'm an historian and I'm always very suspicious whenever I feel like there's some kind of you know, movement in, in one direction or the other. And so, you know, it mm-hmm. feels like we're entering into a post-truth era. You know, it feels like science is, is yeah. being politicized and ideologized. Yep. But do we really have empirical evidence to support this idea that this is a real trend? I mean, when you, you go to these conventions and you see these flat earthers and, and you're like, oh my gosh, like this is crazy. You know, this could never have existed 50 years ago. Well, of course, right. There were people, maybe they just weren't aware of them. You know, they were living yeah. in small towns and, you know, they weren't on the internet. Like, do we have any reason to think yeah. that we are kind of becoming less supportive of the scientific project? You raise a a very good point. I mean, science denial has been around for as long as science has. And I don't think anybody with a straight face can say that science denial is worse now than it was in Galileo's time. I mean, Galileo was put under house arrest. Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake. I mean, those are pretty serious consequences, you know, against so, you know, and you can tell stories about Semmelweis and all the others through the history of science. People have suffered very serious pushback from the forces of denial against scientific, uh, you know, the scientific uh, project. And so you're right to raise the historical perspective. And it's hard to put numbers on it because it's hard to know, you know, are there survey data? There, there is, there, I saw a survey one time of science denial by country, you know, which countries were had more people who were pushed back, that would push back against climate change. Guess who was number one? And then, you know, against evolution, against the other ones. And there are, you know, so you will sometimes find survey data. I remember reading once that 7% of the population in Brazil believed in flat earth. Now, so, you know, you hunger for statistics. You want to know, you know, is the problem really getting worse? That's one way to measure it. I think the other way to measure it is through not just the number of science deniers, but the amount of denialist pollution that's in the information stream. And that's a function of the internet. Used to be that if you wanted to talk to a science denier, you had to go find them. 
You know, they were the guys standing out on the corner with the tinfoil hat, handing out the mimeograph sheet that said we'd never been to the moon. So maybe you knew where he was, but it was one guy, you know, shouting in the wind. Now, people like that have a website and they have a following and they have meetups and they have conventions, which is like the one that I went to. And so I think that there is a real sense in which the problem is worse. Flat Earth has been around for a long time. I'm sure that empirically there was a time in human history when, you know, most of the population were, were flat earthers. But as a function of the growth of denialism and the extent to which it's pervaded our culture, I think there is a case to be made that it's worse now. One great example of that are, is vaccines. I think that people will be shocked. Future school children will read with their mouths open what kind of a political culture we must have been in where uh, you know a third of Americans refuse to get their COVID shots. It, it's just, it, it's incredible that we live in a culture in which that's happened. And that's completely a function of the creation of disinformation and its dissemination on the internet. It's easier to explain the past than it is to predict the future. But it does seem in some sense to me now, if I could speculate, and I'll be proven wrong later, as we always are, that we're in the information age. And that the information age right now is gathering a lot of things together that you know, for the first time in human history, we've got easy access to the truth. But it's polluted with so much dirty, false disinformation that we have trouble finding it. That's a trend that's not just for denialism, but it, I mean, it's infecting our entire culture, I think. Can I put a number on that? I'm not sure I can. Well, okay. So there seems to be, we could talk about the perception of science or the acceptance of science in the non-scientific community, right? The general public, but that might be completely divorced from the trends that are happening, you know, within science, right? So it seems like, you know, within science, the self-correcting nature of science in some ways is getting better, right? Because I think the replication movement, say, in social psychology is, is a really positive thing. But on the other hand, you know, we've seen a lot of politicization around epidemiology right, in the last year where there's yes. been, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people were thinking about, I don't know, the, the impact of what they're saying as being more important than sure. the veracity of what they're saying. So do we have faith that the scientific community, at least internally, is moving in the right direction, even if it's kind of leaving the general public behind to some extent? Well, science is doing fine. Science communication is in crisis. And science communication is in crisis because, for one thing, we're asking scientists to do something they've never done before, which is share their results directly with the American public, who has now been conditioned, in some cases, not to trust them. You know, if you go back to, you know, when I was a boy in the 60s, you know, the space race, I don't know if it's true that more people understood science then than do now. But... They trusted science. And the, when the media reported on science, it was in a positive way. But now, you know, there's no monolithic media anymore. And you can't count on people to, you know, even when scientists are speaking the truth in a way that's understandable, 
you can't count on that getting to people in unadulterated, unfiltered way, because it depends on the media outlet they're hearing it through. That Look, the problem with disinformation, which I think is the, the key to understanding science denial, is not just that it produces false information. It's that it polarizes us and demonizes the other side. It creates a us versus them dynamic around empirical issues so that we literally fall into, you know, different teams and hate the people on the other side. And that gives scientists an impossible task to do good science communication because you can't, and I know this from my own research into science denial, facts do not convince people when they don't trust the person who's the messenger. And if the disinformation is not only giving people false facts, but telling them, don't trust the scientists to be your messenger on this, it's not going to get through. And I mean, there are places that are working on this. There's the Alan Alda Center at Stony Brook. There's the Center for Public Engagement with Science at University of Cincinnati, which are trying to train scientists, you know, how to do this. I wrote my book, How to Talk to a Science Center, because I think they need some help. I think the rest of us need to grab an oar and start talking to the science deniers and pushing back a little bit and not just wait for the scientists to rescue us. You know, I want the scientists working on, the, you know, a, a vaccine for the next variant. I don't want them having to worry about the infodemic. You know, the, the rest of us can work on that too. There, there's actually empirical data now showing that lay people can be just as effective as scientists in pushing back against science denial. There was a, a breakthrough study in uh, Nature Human Behavior in the summer of 2019, which showed, demonstrated empirically, that using the right technique, lay people could convince science deniers. You didn't have to be a scientist to do it. Well, I think we all understand kind of the echo chambers and certainly, you know, there are certain aspects of media where, you know, they're just trying to cater to people's confirmation bias. But do you think that the, I mean, do you think the mainstream media also is to blame to some degree? Because when you read the New York yeah. Times, it seems that, I mean, I was just reading about ju judicial confirmations and, you know, the front page of the New York Times, they don't seem to, they're very suspicious if say a, a judge claims to be interested in the law. They're sort of really interested in, well, what's the hidden agenda of this judge? And, and I think <laughs> that there's also a hint that, you know, scientists have hidden agendas and scientists are I mean, not in the science pages. In the science pages, it's science. When you go to like the, the front page, there seems to be, you know, yeah. even that. And I don't know if, if that comes from, you know, you're talking about postmodernism in the post-truth book and there's, you know, there's left-wing postmodernism, but there's also right-wing. These, I think this is a set of beliefs that have, it's not out of the history of science. It's really coming out of the humanities, but it's sort of, it is a philosophy of science. Yeah. It's permeating kind of people with high degrees of education is... You know, maybe before we get into that, we can f flash back to Popper because, you know, I was, when you, you said in the book that you corresponded with Popper when you were an undergrad I did. and I thought, wow, yeah. that took some courage. I, I was a little bit jealous yeah. of, of you because I think I was in college around the same time and I was reading Popper yeah. around the same time. And he really is like a, a incredibly influential figure. And I think that you're very sympathetic to his project. To, to some degree. Yeah. But, but not, I'm not a falsificationist. Yeah. Well, well, tell us like how important was the, the falsification idea and, and yet, you know, why is it too narrow? Okay. First, I have to say, I, I don't think that the problem with the New York Times coverage on science 
is it you could that you can lay that at the feet of postmodernism or really any other ism. I think that to a certain extent, that's a function of them wanting eyeballs and engagement and you know money that any media outlet is in a in a competition for attention. And so, you know, that can be one thing that that happens there. You're right that the, you know, the science coverage is good on the science pages, but the front page, you just look at what journalists are doing now. Look at, you know, kind of post-Trump. Everything's been politicized. You know, even science has been politicized. So, you know, even if scientists are doing it right, people are always looking for that bias and that agenda. So a pauper, I remember the moment I became a philosopher of science. I was up on the third floor of the Olin Library at Wesleyan. It was raining outside, and I was reading my assignment for, I guess it was for epistemology. And it was Karl Popper's essay, Conjectures and Refutations, the first essay in his book, Conjectures and Refutations, which is a speech. He's a great writer, but th this was even more accessibly written because it was a speech. And I read this, and I thought, this is my project for life, because he's talking there about the demarcation problem. He's talking about what's special about science, how you can know what's special about science, and separate it from things that are not science, like pseudoscience. So that was it. I was hooked. And so I love Karl Popper. And I wrote him when I was an undergraduate. And the way to get Popper's attention was, I, I knew, I said, you know, dear Professor Popper, I, I, you know, I'm an undergraduate at Wesleyan, et cetera, et cetera. I said, I know that Einstein sometimes wrote to students, you know, when they wrote to him. And as you're someone who knew him personally, I wonder if you'd do me the same favor. Yeah, <laughs> that got him. You know, he wrote back. That's how I made it. But what I wrote him about was something that I was criticizing his theory. I had just taken a philosophy of science class, and there are deep problems with falsificationism. Popper thought that you solve the demarcation problem by saying that science was not based on induction. It was based on deduction, which is this you know brilliant, logical move that he made that anybody reads it thinks, wow, why didn't I think of that? This is genius. The problem is that you know it's a nice, solid, stable, logical foundation for science. But there are a lot of things that happen in scientific practice that don't look like that. And so it's, you know, and he spent the rest of his career defending himself against ankle biters like me who were criticizing his, you know, his theory. So the thing that I love about Popper is that he got absolutely right, I think, this idea that science has the critical attitude. He even used the word critical attitude. But then he, logified that. He made the critical attitude into falsificationism, which is basically the idea that science can never prove anything right, but it can prove things wrong, and that it's through understanding what's wrong that science makes progress, which, again, it does to a certain extent, but he argued that all science is like that, you know, that, you know, if P, then Q, not Q, therefore not P. That's how it worked in every case, and it just doesn't always work that way. He also said that positive instances should never count. Anytime you've got a theory that's got positive evidence in its favor, that doesn't count because it's inductive. Is that really the way that scientists work? So he's a genius, but there were a lot of ways to criticize. And I took the piece of Popper that I thought was absolutely on par 
which was the critical attitude. And that was my inspiration for the scientific attitude. I didn't make it up. Helen Longineau, you know, you know, even, you know, back to Francis Bacon, there were other people who did this, you know. So, I mean, I didn't invent this, but I pulled together these different threads to see if I could plug this hole, this wound in the philosophy of science of being able to say what is special about science without trying to solve the logical problem, which is what Popper was doing, the logical problem of demarcation. Because to tell you the truth, I don't think that problem will ever be able to be solved. But it doesn't have to be solved. Because, you know, if we can do something like think about the scientific attitude. So it's to weep in a way because I read Popper and he was so close to that idea of the scientific attitude, but he took it in a logical way. But I, to this day, in the next room, I have that handwritten letter from Popper framed on my wall because it was, like I said, that was when I became a philosopher of science. So, you know, I want to dig into that a bit because on the one hand, it seems too limiting, right? Because it leaves out social sciences to some degree. And, and it also even leaves out- And evolutionary biology. And geology, right? These other things. Yeah. It, it kind of doesn't have, it doesn't really have a coherent account of, of theory, right? So, you know, theory is, plays this, this huge role. And, you know, where do theories come from, right? And theories, you mentioned, yeah. theories are bigger than hypotheses, right? And then you, you, you introduce this, this notion of, of warranted kind of belief. I mean, if you think about the white swan, I've seen a gazillion white swans, but if there's yeah. an infinite number of swans out there, then a gazillion doesn't really tell me any more than a hundred, right? So what does it mean to have a warranted belief? So, so partially the answer here is a, a little bit technical. And if it's too technical for a podcast, just wrap my knuckles and I'll stop, okay? But the problem that Popper and everybody else has been trying to solve in philosophy of science for the last, you know, couple hundred years is the problem from Hume, the problem of induction. Anytime you get knowledge about empirical reality and it all looks like it's going one way, then you see that pattern and you go, hey, terrific. That must be the way the whole world is. What hubris. You haven't seen the rest of the world. How do you know? Every swan you've ever seen has been white. And then one day you go to Australia and you see a black swan. And guess what? That blows up your theory. That one counterexample blows up your theory that all swans are white. So then you have to move on and enlarge your theory, make a different theory. Now, Kuhn, the other giant of philosophy of science, felt that, you know, what happened with, he had a great account of theory, that what happened with scientific theory is that anomalies built up and over time, you know, one theory was radically replaced by another. And Kuhn and Popper knew one another, and they had this debate over theory, you know, basically their whole life. I think that warrant is important. And again, I didn't, you know, invent this idea of warrant. But I think that warrant is important for the following reason. We are never going to be able to solve the problem of induction. We are never going to be able to solve the problem of demarcation. Because what they're asking us to do is to have it be like geometry. And that's just not the way inductive knowledge works. So if you buy the idea... Popper didn't consider geometry science, right? I mean, or it was, right? Yeah, I, I guess his model was deductive logic. So he was trying to found science on deductive logic. But the problem is that the way scientists work, you'd really do want positive instances to be able to count. 
But then what do you do about this problem of induction? Because how many positive instances do you need? And well, the more the better. But in an infinite universe, I don't care how many you have, it's indefinably small compared to infinity. And this is the real problem of induction. This is the moment when the students go, oh no. Because the problem of induction doesn't just undermine certainty, it undermines probability as well. And you very famously get very quickly to the result that you can't be more certain that the sun is going to come up tomorrow than that it's not. You don't understand causation. You don't understand how a three-log fire leads to a one-log fire. You don't understand if you're the same person from moment to moment. There's no connection. There's no, Hume very famously undermined this idea of uh, a necessary connection, that there was none. And that's a real blow to science. If you think of, if science is based on induction, because, I mean, just philosophers are such pain in the ass, right? Look at Descartes, I could be dreaming, it could be an evil genius. Hume with his problem of induction. I mean, in some ways, science has to start after you put those philosophical worries to the side and say, I'm sorry, I'm going to trust my senses. And when my senses give me better and better information, I'm going to think that theory is more likely to be true. Now, here's the kicker with Warren. It may not be true. And you have to always keep that in mind. So what I defend in my book is uh, I call the pragmatic vindication of warranted belief, which is the idea that you can't have certainty. All you can have is warrant. All you can have is better and better evidence. And I maintain that the more evidence you have, the, the more justified you are. Does that mean that your belief is more likely to be true? We'll talk about that another time. But it does mean that no matter how cocky you get about thinking that your theory is great, you always have to remember, this is called fallibilism, it could be wrong. Look, Newton was replaced by Einstein. Ptolemy was replaced by Copernicus. Huge revolutions happen. Someday there will be another revolution in physics, right? Now they've got the relativity and the quantum people, this clash between them. Someday there will be another revolution in physics that will resolve that clash. This is how science works. But it seems to some strange, in some strange way that the denialists are channeling, you know, Hume or, you know, Sextus Empiricus or whatever. Oh, you know. oh God. I, I don't even, don't scrub those words right out of your mouth. I mean... If they, it's bad enough that they've read Newton and Galileo and can say, you know, oh, no, that's flawed for this reason. You know, I mean, I sat through a whole seminar at the Flat Earth Convention on the Coriolis effect, and I didn't remember enough from college physics to remember, you know, to know. I knew they had it wrong, but I couldn't quite remember where they had it wrong. God forbid if they start to read Hume or, or Descartes. I meant sort of ironically, because they're saying like, hey, you know, you can't prove anything. So we might as well just believe. You know, but. That, that is exactly what they're saying. But the, the, the rejoinder to that is that science is not based on proof, that science is based on warrant. Yeah. But I think your point was that they're not true skeptics. They think of themselves as, as skeptics, yeah. but they're not true skeptics. Look, the reason they're not true skeptics is not because, you know, I don't want them on the same team as uh, Descartes and, and Hume. It's because they're not even-handed. They're only skeptical about the things that they don't want to believe. They're gullible as hell about the things they do want to believe. And that's just not allowed in science. I mean, one thing about the philosophical skeptics, 
they paint you into a corner and they leave you there, right? But the deniers are only skeptical with their left hand. Meanwhile, their right hand is creating pseudoscience, and they're not even worried about that. So when they say that they're more skeptical than the scientists, they're really not. They're just, again, they're cafeteria skeptics. They're skeptical about the things that they don't want to believe. They'll ask for proof that we've been to the moon. And you show them a picture, and they'll say that picture was faked. But then they'll show you a picture of something that they think allegedly shows flat Earth. And you say, well, how do you know that picture's not fake? And they say, because it's not. Well, so uh, in terms of warrant, the scientific attitude is one where you are actively pursuing disconfirmatory evidence, right? And so it's not simply the quantity of confirmatory right. evidence that you have, but it's the process by which you went about accumulating that quantity. It, it, that's right, because you're constantly testing. And, and this, you know, this is a Popperian notion, right? You're constantly testing your theory to see if you can disprove it. And if you disprove it, it's wrong and you've got to move on. The little thing that Popper had trouble with, though, the thing that I wrote to him about, again, which I didn't invent, I borrowed it, I think, from Larry Loudon or somebody else at the time, whoever I was reading at the time, college sophomore, I put it in a letter, you know, that, oh, you've never heard of this before. Of course he had. But it was the idea that, what do you do with a theory that's been challenged and you've tried to disprove it over and over and over and it's, and it's lived to fight another day every single time? That's a pretty damn good theory, isn't it? But Popper couldn't allow that. He couldn't say that because it had survived all of those attempted refutations, that it was more likely to be true or that it was better warranted, et cetera, et cetera. He did finally come up with a notion he called corroboration, not confirmation, because that's the boogeyman. That's the bad one. That's the inductive way to do it. But he came up with an account called corroboration, which basically, logically, is just like confirmation. And this, this is the, the problem that he was never really able to solve. But it's what a fascinating history. I mean, I don't know what your area of history is, but to me, the history of science is just a uh, bedtime story reading. I mean, I love it. I used to tell my kids, you know, stories from the history of science. Well, my area was economic history. And, and I remember my advisor on day one said, listen, you know, you need to come up with a hypothesis and you need to test it. Right. And it's like, yeah, okay, well, that's not easy to do in history, right? But because you don't have any controlled experiments, you have to, you know, do it obliquely. But I want to talk about the flip side a bit, which is, you know, what happens when there is disconfirmation Right. So, you know, think about the, the Newtonian, you know, transition to Einstein and you know, how long that took, because there were these anomalies that were piling up. So you don't just reject a theory as soon as you see the first anomaly. Right. So how long do you kind of persist with an anomaly? Yeah. I mean, with a theory and, and in, in, in many ways, it's this is you see this all the time, right? You know, in life, right? You know, if you're if you're married, yeah. like how long do you stay married? You know, if you start getting bad you know, evidences of bad yeah. marriage or something like how, at what point, and, and you yeah. mentioned things like elegance and do we, are we tempted to confuse our assessment of a theory's elegance with the extent to which kind of we want it to be true? What's the difference between wishful thinking and the, you know, aesthetic appreciation of a theory? It's a great question because what you've said there is anticipates the move of the 
Thomas Kuhn made of arguing that we don't, of course, and he's also a historian of science, we do not just move from one theory to another at the first refuted experiment. It takes a long time. So he, Kuhn made the argument in his book, Structure Scientific Revolutions, that anomalies build up, things that we can't explain. But until we have a better theory that explains everything the old theory explained, plus the new stuff that the old theory couldn't explain, we don't move. And sometimes that can take hundreds of years. So there's another problem for Karl Popper, isn't there? Because Popper made it sound like the second you have a re refutation, you just give up that old theory. Well, what do you do? You don't jump from a bad theory, you know, into the Marianas Trench. You jump from a bad theory to a better one, and which is what you know, Kuhn argued. But what do you do when you're in that interim period and you've got two theories, and then this sometimes this horrible thing happens where you've got two theories which are deeply incompatible with one another? I mean, they cannot both be right, but they both have empirical evidence in their favor. Where's how do you choose between them? They're empirically equivalent. They make predictions and the predictions are fulfilled. They can't be refuted. They may, maybe got the same amount of anomalies, but they're different anomalies. This is where Kuhn talks about, in some sense, people have accused him of making this irrational, this process of theory choice. Aesthetics, fruitfulness, which theory is simpler? Which theory will lead to a more fruitful hypothesis where we can continue to do science and come up with better predictions? Which theory is more beautiful? Those considerations come into play for scientists. And so it's a, science is not completely rational, Kuhn says. Now, people took that too far, Feyerabend, other philosophers of science, and it drove Kuhn insane because, you know, he was a friend of science and wanted to defend science. And I, I had a personal encounter with Kuhn. I went to a seminar that he was giving at MIT, and I asked him, uh, again, I was a young guy, I was in grad school, I think, and I asked him how it was that he wrote his book, Structure Scientific Revolutions, about the natural sciences, but that so many of his fans came from the social sciences, which is a kind of a loaded question, right? Because what's the evidence for one economic theory versus another? Do they use aesthetics, fruitfulness? And he kind of laughed and he said, I think I finally gave the social sciences a, a target they could hit. And the room just, you know, broke up into laughter because that's actually a pretty good answer. But, you know, just think about, I, I'm, I don't understand enough physics. I love physics. I love astronomy. I don't understand enough about it. But what I do understand is that right now, quantum mechanics and relativity cannot both be true but they both have empirical evidence in their favor to the point where you can't say, and they don't explain the same things completely. And this is what string theory is all about, this idea that how can you reconcile these two theories? Physics is in something of a crisis, which is a stage in theory growth, according to Kuhn. And when the anomalies build up, you know, there will be a clash and this will get solved somehow, but we're kind of in the middle of it now. I hope I live long enough to see how it comes, turns out. I, I didn't, wasn't tempted to go into physics and, you know, devote my life to, to doing that. But I really want to know how this 
comes out because I love the history of science so much. And it's just kind of the story of our time in, in uh, science, I think. Well, I mean, it's fascinating the process by which one theory kind of replaces another. And I guess the pessimistic view is that it happens over the bodies of the, you know, dead scientists. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's what Kuhn said. The, the old guys die. Right. <laughs> and I'm a little bit more optimistic. And so that takes us a little bit to you know, your book on persuasion. And I'm wondering if there's a continuum here. I mean, you're talking about trying to persuade the science mm -hmm. deniers. And I'm wondering to what extent are the same tools useful when you're dealing with a science denier as opposed to, you know, trying to convince your fellow scientists to, to change their, their parole. And I, you know, well, this is not a natural science, but I remember in, in George Stigler's memoir, he's an economist at Chicago and, and he described when Ronald Coase came and spoke to the famous econ workshop, I think in the 1950s, and he began his presented his paper at the beginning, every single economist in the room said that his theory was wrong. And then at the end of the seminar, they all said it was right. And, and I just remember reading that and thinking how beautiful that was, but also the reason why I think it's beautiful is because it's kind of rare, right? I mean, how did he do it though? Did he do it with the evidence or did he do it with his gorgeous rhetoric? Well, it was, you know, it's again, social, it was it's economics. It was all theory, right? It was, Okay. There are a couple examples, but it was, it was really just a, it was a, it was a theoretical thing, but S scientists sometimes resist a, a good scientific theory. The example of Semmelweis, which is an example that I use in scientific attitude, the guy who finally said, look, shouldn't we be washing our hands? You know, after we do an autopsy, shouldn't we be washing our hands before we deliver babies? Because an awful lot of women are dying from childbed fever, which is, you know, they didn't know it then, but a, a type of infection. And, but the germ theory of disease was not invented yet. And, you know, Lister hadn't come along yet. I, I think I got my history right there. And people ridiculed him. They uh, bounced him out of his position. He, you know, kind of wandered Europe proselytizing for his view, but was, you know, ridiculed. History is full of this. So Wegener on continental drift, you know, all over the place. So sometimes the old guys die and the theory takes over. That's kind of what happened with Semmelweis. He didn't convince people. And then Harlan Bretz, no, right. Etiology. Yeah. So this is a real frustration. Bretz had the evidence that there was a gigantic flood in the Pacific Northwest, which created the Scablands in, in Washington. And the geologists didn't want that to be true at some level because they were fighting a war against the creationists. In geology, they didn't want it to be true that there was, I mean, a catastrophic flood. Are you kidding me? Do you know what this is going to do to us? And so, you know, he, but he had the evidence, but they still, you know, pushed him back. Now, eventually over a lifetime, within his lifetime, he got a cable from a group of uh, geologists who said, we're all, and I forget what the, the word was, gra gradual or um, catastrophist now, you know, that they believed this. So, I mean, it's not like science is so perfect that they never push back. And in an ideal world, the evidence should be what convinces them. But as you point out, sometimes it does not. Now, that does not mean scientists are being science deniers. Sometimes, you know, it's a pretty high bar to give up one theory for another, and the evidence has to be compelling to do so when you're creating a revolution in the field like Wegener or Semmelweis or Darwin or Galileo were, right? It has to be overwhelming evidence. I mean, the choice, the choice of what your null hypothesis, I mean, that, that's sort of, 
that sort of stacks the deck, right? One way or another, right? Yeah. And, you know, that sort of is probably the most important choice, right? When you're trying yes. to figure out what to believe, right? It, it, it is because what's chance? I mean, what, what could be true by chance? And, you know, what's the, the, this, I mean, this was one of Brett's arguments. You know, he found a, a rock, a, a little where it shouldn't be, way up on top of this very high cone of, you know, look like, you know, of, of another rock. How did that get there? Well, of course, it was pushed there by the water. So if it didn't get there by the water, you know, he kept coming back into his mind, you know, how did it get there? There had to be an explanation. And the, what I was going to say is, I don't define a science denier as somebody who pushes back against the scientific consensus. Because scientists do that all the time. That's how you get a Harlan Bretz. That's how you get a Galileo. Somebody who pushes back against the scientific consensus. It sounds like you're quoting Ted Cruz here. Didn't, didn't Ted Cruz say Yes, that? compares himself to Galileo, right? So, I mean, and I get angry letters sometimes from people who say, how dare you call me a denier? You know, I'm just pushing back against the scientific consensus. I'm the next Darwin. I'm the next Galileo. What the sufficient conditions for being a science denier is not just that they push back against a scientific consensus, but that they have no evidence for their alternative theory, and that they won't say what evidence would convince them to give up their theory. So it takes all three. So if you think about Galileo, he had the evidence. Harlan Bretz, he had the evidence. Ignaz Semmelweis, he had the evidence. So they weren't deniers. Now, the people on the other side were they deniers? I'm not sure I'm willing to go there because they had an awful lot of evidence that their hypothesis was true as well for, you know, the 10 or 20 or, or longer, you know, years. You know, what was the evidence that Newtonian theory was true before Einstein blew it up? I mean, it took a little while for people to realize, oh yeah, I mean, it wasn't as quick as the, you know, with the Coase theorem. So you put your finger on something important. It's not an entirely orderly process. It's not a logical process. It's not, we said it was this, it's not, therefore, you know, that theory is wrong and we're going to move on. They go, ooh, that's bad. You know, there's something wrong with that theory, but we don't know what. But until they have, Kuhn says, until they have another theory that's a better competitor, they're not going to change. So I think you point out you could be a good scientist and, and be wrong, right? I mean, in fact, yeah. so you're probably, every good scientist is probably wrong about, for sure. We just don't know yet. You, you can be wrong without being a pseudoscientist. The problem with pseudoscientists is not that they're wrong. It's that they're pseudoscientists. They're not doing it in the, they're doing it in the wrong way. Well, so I want to talk just a bit about what we think of as, as the critique of science. And in, in your book, Post-Truth, right, you highlight how a lot of, funding for different scientific initiatives or I guess initiatives that are designed to sow doubt in, in other kind of studies and research played a huge role in whether it's climate denial or, you know, you talk about the tobacco companies as basically yes. creating the, the playbook for this. And, and it seems that, you know, when we look at say research around opiates, I mean, the conventional wisdom 20 years ago was that, oh yeah, opiates are, are not addictive, right? <laughs> You know, and why would anybody think that? Because there was quite a bit of funding that was injected yeah. into the medical community uh, around these studies funded by, you know. By industry. Well, th and, and this is Naomi Ruskis and Eric Conway wrote that 
brilliant book, Merchants of Doubt, you don't need to prove that opiates are not addictive. You don't need to prove that smoking doesn't cause lung cancer. All you need to do is create some doubt because doubt gives you, so it's not a settled scientific question. We're still studying it because doubt gives you delay and delay gives you an opportunity to continue to sell your product. So the profit motive is behind a good deal of science. Now look at climate change. The fossil fuel companies knew about climate change in the seventies. How do we know that? Because the memos have leaked showing that ExxonMobil had a plan to drill in the Arctic once the polar ice cap had receded. Now, so talk about cynical. They knew at the same time that they were giving money to private foundations and quote unquote think tanks to try to create doubt, to try to make it sound like, well, this isn't really a settled scientific question. The definitive experiment hasn't been done yet. We need more evidence. There's not a hundred percent scientific consensus. Well, guess what? There's not a hundred percent scientific consensus on evolution by natural selection, but it is the backbone of biological explanation. Nothing in some famous biologist, I can't remember which said once that nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. So, you know, there are nefarious forces behind science denial. It's not an accident. It's a lie. It's not always a financial incentive. Sometimes it can be ideological or political, but people lie about empirical reality because it serves their interests and they pump that out on the internet and people see it and they believe it. And that makes science denial just 10 times worse. Well, I, I think the critics would argue that it's not just science denial that is funded by interested parties, but big chunks of science, what we think of as science itself. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's possible to evaluate the credibility of evidence simply by looking at the, even the procedure that was used in the construction of it, but you kind yeah. of have to look at the industrial organization of the production. I mean, if 90% of the studies are, are, are funded by a particular institution that might have an agenda, this should give you some, some reason. Oh, sure. That. that should raise sus suspicion. I mean, one of the great things in science is you have to disclose your funding sources and any possible conflicts of interest. And then the paper is peer reviewed by people who presumably, you know, are not the chairman of your department or your brother-in-law, they have no reason to be nice to you or your hypothesis. They can go through and, you know, really evaluate it. I mean, science is not perfect, but it is, it has got safeguards that try to keep us from just, you know, giving over to saying what our funders want us to say or putting forward the theory that we want to be true because, you know, we have a, a financial stake in it or something like that. But I, I want to be careful of false equivalence here because yes, there can be, uh, I had a chapter in my book on fraud. There is such a thing as scientific fraud. It's certainly not as much of a problem as science denial and pseudoscience. I think the scientific attitude helps you push back against all of them. But Look at what happens when a scientist commits fraud. Say you found out that a scientist, you know, had a, a study which found, you know, X result, but they had a financial stake in the company that, you know, was vindicated by this study. That's in some cases a career killing move and committing fraud. 
that's game over. I mean, people, that's the one form of scientific heresy. If people commit fraud, they're out. They'll find success somewhere in the internet. Well, maybe they do. I mean, there there were cases at Harvard uh, when I was an administrator there. There were brilliant researchers, well-respected, you know, household names who were now out of the profession. Not only not at Harvard, they're not in the profession anymore. But I want to talk just a bit about the social sciences, because you, you say that social sciences now are kind of where medicine was. <laughs> You know, back in the yes. days of bleeding, and I, I think that, that might be a little that might be a little harsh. And then you do talk about <laughs> kind of the, the some of the things that have happened recently. In particular, you talk about the rise of experimentation in, in social science <laughs> and how this is, you know, a huge move uh, forward. So, first of all, you know, how did medicine move from the dark ages to becoming a scientific yeah. discipline? And yeah, I mean, it's I don't think it's completely scientific. I think a lot of doctors. Oh, you're right think scientifically necessarily they're right. just focused on executing the protocols but social science is you know how is social science what does social science need to do to become more scientific well it in my book in scientific attitude i have a chapter in medicine and i have the chapter in social science and the reason i do that in you know in close juxtaposition is because i want to demonstrate look at how wonderful modern medicine is 150 years ago it was terrible 150 years ago, the, the practice, I mean, even if you can point to people like Pasteur and, you know, the others, the, the scientists of medicine were doing great bench work, that had not filtered out into practice. I mean, there, there were, you know, pe people were engaging in barbaric medical practices, yeah, from Galen way back, but all the way forward. I mean, when Garfield, when President Garfield was shot, was, you know, assassinated, he didn't die right away. It took him a month to die. And his assassin's defense at trial was that he didn't die from the bullet. He died from his doctors probing the wound with their dirty fingers. And this was the president. So the point is that medicine was a mess 150 years ago. And through a series, and it's a long, complicated, interesting story of how it came out of this. But the bottom line is that they began to embrace the scientific attitude. They had to want to become a science. They had to care about whether their hypotheses were tested, whether, you know, each doctor could just say, well, you know, I've had good luck with this, but not care what anybody else did. And the worry, and I say this with tough love, the worry that I have about the social sciences is that they are far too ideological, that it should not, it would not be tolerated and it should not be that you can have social scientists on the left and the right who have very different empirical findings, you know, based on different data sets, based on different ways that you can sort of cheat that's short of fraud, but it's still not right because that's what serves whatever policy agenda, you know, will get your policy adopted by whichever person is in power in the White House. I think that people will look back. This is why I wrote the book. I think people will look back on our current age is the dark ages of social science. There are bright spots. I think that behavioral economics is wonderful because behavioral economics is where economics, and now I'm stepping probably all over your toes here, but behavioral economics is when economics started to care about experimentation. They didn't just say, well, you know, assume perfect information. 
you know, or assume a frictionless transaction, you know, because by the way, this is what we need to make the neoclassical model work. And if we don't have that, we've got nothing. Behavioral economics is when they figured out, you know, all the, they, they started to care about all of these real world problems. And I think that's the road that medicine was on. That's a much longer story in the book. If folks are interested, the, the book's now out in paperback, pretty cheap copy they can get. It's even out on uh, audiobook or other formats. So I tell that story. But I, I always feel badly because I love the social sciences. I started out in the philosophy of social science. I wanted, my dissertation was on why there was no fundamental barrier in the way of having laws of human behavior, why you could basically have a science of human behavior, but, you know, for these problems. So I really want the social sciences to be better because it shouldn't be that in the 21st century, politicians can stand up and say, well, you know, if we crack down on guns, that's not going to have any effect. You know, if we if we pass a universal background check, that's not going to stop school shootings. Has that been studied in empirical? Have do they have the data for that? Or I remember Mitt Romney one time when he was governor of Massachusetts said, "Well, you know, of course the death penalty deters crime. Any child knows that." Well, you know, I'm sorry, Mitt, but the experimental literature, the empirical literature tends to show that you're wrong. But, you know, th this is when politicians can stand up and just kind of make up the facts. And worse than that, find some social scientist somewhere where they can cherry pick off, you know, oh, if I want to show that immigrants are good for the economy, I know which social scientists I can go to for that study. If I want to show that they're bad for the economy, well, there's a think tank that kind of specializes in that. You don't find that in physics. They don't shop for the data. You know, NASA doesn't go around shopping for the right physicists to give them the equation so that they know whether it's the right time to launch. It's not supposed to work that way. So it is tough love. I'm very hard on the social sciences in scientific attitude and really throughout my work. And I once in my career had the privilege of being the executive director of a think tank that had some of the finest so quantitative social scientists in the world. And I got to see up close, you know, how good social science was performed. So, but it's not, and it doesn't have to be quantitative to be good. Qualitative economics, qualitative political science, sociology can be fine. It's just, it depends on what you're studying, what the standards of rigor are. Well, well now, of course, we do have think tanks that support things like creation science right so so now we do we can get some balance on that debate like we do yeah what's that science. we need yeah but look we've been saying some pessimistic things but i think it, at the heart of the book how to talk to a science denier there's some fundamental optimism and we were talking yeah. before the podcast about the famous backfire effect and the backfire effect essentially says that you know if you present people with evidence that's contrary to their view they just kind of double down on their view and you point out that this this hasn't been replicated and this opens up the door maybe to kind of more persuasion as possibility and so rather than just That's kind right. of vilifying and and um, ostracizing folks that are outside of the mainstream maybe there is hope that yeah. we can convince them through engagement and you describe the beginning of the book you you, you go to that flat earth convention 
<laughs> I was thinking you should have yeah. brought a you should have brought a filmmaker with you to to document this whole thing because this would I, I wish I had this would have made a fantastic. Maybe you can do go to the next one <laughs> undercover. I don't know. I, I I want well. I'm not undercover anymore. I had a. They all know who I am now. I had some publicity as a result of that. They all know who I am. But yeah, I'd like to bring a filmmaker. I convinced a physicist to go with me to the next one. Yeah, it would be that would be interesting. There is a film that has some footage at a, the, uh, the Flat Earth International Conference. It's called Behind the Curve, and it's a very well-done documentary. So if anybody's interested in that, in Behind the Curve, you should take a look. And, um, you know, the overthrow, well, the, the inability to reproduce the backfire effect, this happens sometimes in science. Studies can't be replicated. It's as long as there's no fraud involved, it's perfectly respectable. That's how we learn. You know, the field moves on. That result in particular was a terrific one, as far as I'm concerned, because it means that you're not doing any harm. You may not convince them, but you're not doing any harm to try. And when the backfire effect was still raging, there were articles in The Atlantic and The New Yorker, which I think scared people into thinking, I better keep my mouth shut. I shouldn't even talk to somebody who's an anti-vaxxer or a climate denier, because I might just make them mad and then they'll hold their view even more strongly. And with the inability to replicate the backfire effect, coupled with the later work by Cornelia Bates and Philip Schmid, the paper in Nature Human Behavior that I talked about, which really my whole new book is built around that study, is makes the argument that you know, they showed with statistical significance you can convince science deniers to give up their views. There are two different ways to do it. One is content rebuttal, if you're an expert in their field. The other is technique rebuttal, which you don't have to be an expert in their field, but you do have to study their form of reasoning. You do have to understand that they're going to cherry pick evidence and engage in conspiracy theories and rely on fake experts and things like that. But that once you do that, don't talk to them about the facts. Talk to them about how they're reasoning about the facts. And that's what I did at the Flat Earth Convention. I didn't go in there talking about Aristarchus. I didn't go in there talking about Galileo. They were ready for that. They'd had seminars on that. They had a script for that. They knew just what to say to me. Instead, I came in there with Karl Popper. I said, you believe in Flat Earth based on evidence, right? Yes, absolutely, based on the evidence. Okay, so you're kind of thinking about this scientifically. That's correct. So here's a question. What evidence, if I could produce it for you out of my back pocket, would convince you to give up your beliefs? And they couldn't answer that question. That's why they're not scientists. That's the cleaving question for the scientific attitude, really. Any scientist could answer that question. The science deniers could not. I'm not saying that's a criteria of demarcation. I love the fact that Popper got there first, right? That's his question. Because really, if you have the critical attitude, I call the scientific attitude, you should be able to say, if you're a rational person convinced by evidence, this evidence would convince me, and they can't. So the question then is, does their desire to be scientific outweigh their desire to believe this particular belief and and presumably it almost never does it, it, it almost never does and and here i'll turn everyone to that documentary behind the curve because at the very end of it they're doing experiments through the whole thing and they're not good experiments or they're they're not well done experiments they could be good but they're not 
handling it well. The guy who built the rocket, you know, he was never going to get high enough. You got to go 60,000 feet to see the curvature of the earth, you know. He ultimately died in that rocket, by the way. But they had an experiment at the end of this documentary where they tried to recreate something called a Bedford level experiment, where you have three posts on an extremely flat surface with a little ring at the top, and then you shine a light beam through that ring. And if the earth is flat, it should go through all three of the rings. And if it's not, it's going to, you know, go above the third ring. Now, you've got to put these, these have got to be incredibly far apart. And, you know, they tried it with flashlights and the light was too diffuse, but they finally got a laser, you know, and they, they I mean, they, they were embracing some sort of experimental attitude. But here's where they screwed it up. I'm going to give away the end of the movie. They did it. The experiment in just about the right way. And guess what? They couldn't get the light to go through the ring. And they said, wait a minute, lift it up. And they lifted it up. Bing! It went through. Thus showing that the earth is not flat. And that's roll credits, right? But that didn't convince them. Those same people were back at the next Flat Earth Convention. And even more damning, they had, they, at one point, they bought a gyroscope, not the kind of gyroscope you play with as a, as a kid, but the one that, you know, can measure a drift. It's a, a complicated physics question, but it, it will measure whether we're moving or not. And they set this up, this gyroscope up, and it showed, you know, 15 degrees of drift, just as is actually true that scientists can show. And they kept saying, well, there must be something wrong with this. There must be something, we, we, we must be doing the experiment wrong. And then at the end of it, a hot mic caught them at a convention saying, don't tell anybody about that experiment. If that came out, it would be terrible. Nope, that's not science. So what's the secret then? You know, Dan Kahan says you, you have to basically find someone that they trust and that they identify with. And then when that person, you know, if Clint Eastwood comes out in favor of gun control, then that's when, you know, that's going to do right. more than any statistics or study or evidence. So how do you earn trust? And then it's better to start with trust. It's better if you, you, somebody already trusts you. If they don't, you can build trust. You build trust by showing up in person, face to face, and behaving yourself. You build trust by calm, listening, patience, showing respect for the person, if not for their views. That's what I tried to do at the Flat Earth Convention didn't yell at anybody. I didn't tell anybody they were stupid. They get abused all the time. I treated them respectfully. They treated me respectfully. I listened to them. They listened to me. I didn't get anybody to tear off their lanyard and say what a fool I was. I think that was an unrealistic expectation. Did I get them to listen? I think I did. And what Bates and Schmidt have shown is that sometimes that results in people giving up their views. Now, it doesn't always happen on the spot. You have to circle back. I made a big mistake at the Flat Earth Convention. I left at the end of two days, and I didn't keep up with anybody. Rather than going home and writing about it for Newsweek, I should have taken a whole sheaf of email addresses and phone numbers and kept up with them. I might have convinced somebody. But I went back to my bubble. <laughs> well, Lee, thanks so much for joining me. The latest book, again, is How to Talk to a Science Denier. We could have dug into, we could have just talked about post-truth all day. I mean, that's such a relevant topic, even though this is, I think now five years old, this book that came out. Yeah, it keeps, you know, it, it keeps being made relevant by all the shenanigans in Washington.
And of course, I think this is really a powerful book. It's called The Scientific Attitude. And it's all about the scientific virtues that we need to cultivate to be better scientists. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. It's really been an enjoyable conversation for me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.